I look back and go, well, so what is filmmaking? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet, but I can say that I can start leaning towards filmmaking as a feeling. You need all this technical stuff to conjure the feeling. But if you're so hyper-focused on tech, on technology and gear, then you've, then what, how much time have you spent on the feeling of something? My name is Din Tai. I'm a writer director here in Los Angeles. Um, I've recently have been fortunate enough to get into the TV directing game. Uh, I recently also co-wrote a pilot called Asian Baby Girl for Freeform, which I was lucky enough to direct. Um, I've been here in Los Angeles since 1980, and, um, and it feels good to be pursuing my um, storytelling dreams. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Din, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's been uh, I've been waiting for a long time to uh, sit down with uh, with you. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you these days? That's a tough question, Ken. Um, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. But that is a very tough question to answer. Um, part of me is trying to not uh, be any race, and and then the other part has to recognize that I am a certain race. And what makes my <clears throat> my designation so interesting is that we're ethnically Chinese born in Vietnam. And for for the ones that don't quite understand that, it's like being Irish born in America. And um they're growing up and learning about my heritage, I discovered that I was Chinese and I just assumed that I was Vietnamese. And that's part of like what the Western world has done and has indoctrinated in me, which is what you look like is where you're from and where you're from is where you're from. But as we get older, you can look, you're Amer when we say American, hopefully you don't just paint one picture, you paint a picture that has many colors. And, um, and so being Vietnamese, is cultural to me, it's historic to me because being obviously refugees, but also being Chinese is equally important to my family. Um, and we grew up practicing traditional Buddhism, which was the prayer stuff, but not the temple stuff. And um, many of the events and the annual events, such as um, it, you know, for us, it was Chinese New, New Year and then it became Lunar New Year, and then I started to discover what Tet was, Tet Festival was, and um, and so it's really, what it really means is that I have a lot to learn about myself. That's what being Vietnamese. Yeah, means. it's a beautiful. I I love what you you know started out with. It um, it's a lot of it's very nebulous sometimes, you know, and uh, we yep. share so many different things, especially as Vietnamese Americans uh, with uh, Chinese ethnic backgrounds, like my family. On my dad's side, same history that I share yep. with guys like you and Ham Tran, and you know we we all have that part of our history, and it, yeah. it enriches our history as Vietnamese people to have all of these other cultures as well. Yeah, it's very special. I'm I'm very honored to be Yunnan Wakyu, which is a very specific group of Chinese Vietnamese people. How did your family and you get to um, the U.S.? Uh, that's a long story. Um, 
but it's also very similar to many other people's story. Our, our story was a little bit more, um, there was a big stroke of luck. My dad, you know, was really smart. He's, he is still really smart. Thank God. He spoke many languages and he used his skills in business and linguistics to speak and persuade the right people to get us on a plane. There's a bigger story there. And I can't tell you all of it because it's so special at some point that, um, you know, in, in person, I can share with you what the details are, but, um, it took him six months to get us on a plane out of Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. And we ended up luckily in a suburb in Paris. We spent five years there. And, um, and I recently spoke to my dad about three or four years ago. I have an audio recording of him and he still reflects back. He's 80 something now. This was 1975 through 1980 in France. And he still reflects back on that, on those moments as the happiest moments of our family's lives. Why do you think that? Because Why those we, five years? Because we, we, although we fled and left our home country, there was peace on the other side of that. There was hard work and the, and the American dream was really far away. And we can get into what the American dream uh, is a little bit later, but, um, and we loved each other because we didn't have anything else. We only had our lives and the money my parents made and then each other in the small apart, the, the small apartments that we lived in. And so then are, are you, I'm sorry, are you implying that later in life with more things in the US that life became a little less happy for yeah. your family and for your father? Yeah, much, much, ha much less happy or <laughs> what what wait uh yeah far from happy it was a, a lot darker um when my parents found success um wait are we are we about to get into that like can uh, we get into it a little bit or it's what the american dream promises you but it never tells you what you have to sacrifice right you can what america promises you is that you can work hard make a lot of money and have a great great life but they don't tell you how to they don't tell you what you've sacrificed along the way you've sacrificed friendships relationships time with your family and then once you unravel and unpack the negativity inside of those pursuits the, of the american dream we as asian people we as chinese vietnamese people we have a lot of um what's the word um grudges and we hold on to it. And so now the family dinners that you're supposed to have that are peaceful and pure are 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 met with angst and spite. And no longer are those family times precious anymore. They're tainted, you know. Um when when my parents work really, really damn hard, and so did my um siblings. I'm the youngest of them. And uh, uh, my, I remember a tiny little grocery store that my parents ran. And then I remember a little restaurant that they ran. And then they worked their way up to buy a um, restaurant supply company in Chinatown. And they bought it off of somebody. I forget who it was. And then... That was the start of their success, like financial success, quote unquote, what success is. 
And as they gained more money, they started to provide some of that, um, some of those resources to my family members and then my, my siblings, and then they started to sort of fight over it. And, and then my siblings became more successful and then people are loaning each other money and, and it, you know, the money disappears because some things don't work out and then people start holding grudges. So you see that in pursuit of the of the American dream, we, what we lost was each other. We lost our connection with our siblings and connections with our parents and, some I would say, you know, out of uh, if Leave It to Beaver is a 10 and whatever family is a zero, we're probably at emotionally and psychologically probably like, like at a five. And financially, luckily, we're we're pretty good, you know. Um, but that's not that's not the that's not the scale that we want to measure success. Okay. Well, would do you think can you answer for you first and then maybe answer for your father what you think would you trade that five for the leave it to beaver financially i mean how would you i don't think it's a trade right i think the question in itself ken that you ask is also very western in in a way we've been indoctrinated to be binary yes no black white trade trade this yeah you get here, pick one of two. What are you talking about? Well, how could we do? How could we do? How could we balance this? What? How, how do we reframe the question? What could you have done? What can you do to mend the relationships with your family so that you were not at a five? Now, that is a cultural question to me, if if you will, if if I may the sacrifices and the sort of the ability to absorb these back and forths of losing things that belong to our siblings and stuff like that that for me is very vietnamese very asian that we can absorb it and not like because I, I have family in vietnam now that i feel like they're just a little bit more equipped with that way of thinking to absorb financial losses and gambles within each other's businesses that we are not able to do here uh, and it's a cultural thing, perhaps. Yeah. I think part of it is when our family developed survival instincts, that comes with a lot of um, attributes. That comes with a lot of characteristics. What is it? What does a survivor look like when you're a refugee? You've come to another country and now all you're operating on are survivor instincts, right? The way you eat is a little bit faster. The way you move around the world is a little bit faster. The way you present yourself is a little bit more aggressive. Um, and I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but these are some of the the traits that are associated with it. And um, and I think that being, I think that operating on survivor instincts is dangerous. Is dangerous, but also I wouldn't trade that for anything. So it's really harnessing the good and the bad and making it something more special as opposed to letting the good and the bad just exist together. You, you know, um, when I go into these kind of interviews with anybody, I kind of have these like, you know, questions that I customize for, for everybody. And sometimes it goes off on a tangent, like it's going off right now, which I love because I am, my curiosity is peaked right now because to have this sort of introspection about what you're talking about with 
this family dynamic and to actually like kind of pinpoint where this is all like happening sometimes i feel like our parents or whoever is the heavy influencers of our sort of way of thinking because as kids we don't naturally think about these things we're just like going through who influenced you to have this sort of introspection this is like a lot of deep introspection um that you're coming to the table with and i didn't i really didn't expect it so do you oh. think it came from your mom your dad and uncle i don't know where it came from mm. but i'm lucky to have it yeah because i mean it, it really uh goes right into this whole filmmaking and tv and writing and and really you know we'll, we'll talk about these projects that you, you you know now i can see it now i can see the kind of like the the footprint of where like this sort of like these questions and and i'm identifying kind of like the path of of where these things are coming from well you may you can you maybe bring up a you may have brought up a really good point which is in filmmaking and storytelling we we have to answer the the why why does the character decide on these things why does the world why is the world the way it is towards that character and possibly through that practice i've used that in my own life somehow subconsciously um but i've, I've always been very self um right what's the right word i've always been very self-conscious and especially so when when i would do something when i would have an emotional reaction to something and the world and the people didn't receive it well and i'm like why what what's going on there you know what's the why aren't they receiving it well and why am i this way and and having enough of those experiences was lucky enough for me to like think about myself in that way and try to make adjustments and also um being an introvert at some point in my life and being an, an observer gave me a chance to just think about why people interact and treat each other a certain way and obviously having my family right in my face like that it just it's obvious it's always there so um so i think the the answer is to your question about where this came from where this an introspective came from was being an introvert being a creative having a family to go through these traumatizing experiences and using again using all those not having them separate but using them all together to understand and generate this um other type of interaction in these experiences right um so yeah that's that's probably the answer what what part of uh la did you grow up in i grew up in the san Gabriel valley what what high school did you go to temple city high temple city okay yeah you so, did were you from around here yeah yeah i grew up uh in koreatown predominantly yeah. but i went to bosco tech which is uh here in rosemead in the sgv yeah. but i didn't have a lot of friends um in really I, I don't know why i never really bonded with anybody i went to high school or college with uh, i always had friends on the outside um you know I had church friends growing up in high school and then i think when i got to usc i was hanging out with a bunch of people in the film industry outside yeah, yeah. and so it's just i i just couldn't i don't know why i didn't bond with the the people that I, but i keep in touch with some people but um i wouldn't say that i have friends from high school uh from the high schools that I went to. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, have you figured out why? Do you think you just grew apart and, and people change? No, I, I just don't. Um, I 
that's a personality trait. Like I remember sitting in English class or math class. I always had the book under the book, right? Like I always brought in like a, 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 a like a novel or whatever. I, I'm never able to really stay in the present moment. And so I always like, I think it's just like this personality trait I have. I, I'm always trying to do two things and not really good at one thing. It's always yeah. like multiple things. Like always have multiple screens, if you will, you know, in my life, uh, you know, how you have screens yeah. in the computer. It's, it's always like, so I can jump around. So never was really able to, lock in and you know um i try to do things differently now because if i went to temple city i would like if, if i look back and if my kids go to temple city or, or alhambra high or whatever i would want them to kind of experience having a a a an experience where they're in it they're present and they're in the present moment instead of like drifting and wishing they were not in the in the, in the moment yeah I don't think what I don't think not being present is a bad thing. I think that not everyone fits into society the way we think society is. Mm -hmm. And so um you know dreamers man dreamers are has has what changed the world. Yeah. Right? People that are present studying whatever the curriculum is you know you could say that we're just the robots. We're just the cogs. And then the ones that drifted away and never wanted to be in the present moment hmm. had more potential to go on and do more interesting things because they were starved for that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What, uh, when did you start thinking about the movie business? Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Um, so um, I'm almost, I'm going to be 49 pretty soon. And in my early 20s, I was heartbroken. I fell in love with uh, my high school girlfriend and then we broke up and that just spun me out. And so my friends who are musicians and photographers um, and they were some of them were just in, into the arts and I hung out with these guys um, and I got into photography and I felt like shooting photos was a way for me to distract myself. And so then in my 20s, I I um, I started to pick up a camera and just shoot stuff. My brother, Douglas, bought me a video camera. And I started to document my friend's journey into rock and rollism or whatever you call it, whatever mm -hmm. they were doing. And, um, and I just recorded stuff. And then my other friend, Brent, he went to Art Center um, and he was making little videos and little films. And that inspired me. And, and so eventually I got my way into art center, studied film. And now I'm, by the time I graduated, I was 28. So that's how long it took me to wow. figure it out. Um, and coming out, um, I partnered with a, a fellow classmate to be a directing duo. And we got some gigs. We got a handful of gigs, uh, commercials, national commercials. And, and then that dried up really quick. And so, by the time I was in my thirties, I was kind of lost. Like, what am I doing as a filmmaker? And then I ignored it and just became an editor because that's what I was good at. And so from my thirties on to almost on to my forties, early forties, um, I was an editor, somewhat of a director, 
And eventually in 2016, six years ago, so I was 42 when I, when I made Monday. I think that's the math. Holy shit. Wow. 42 when I made my first short film because I'd made one in college and it was trash. And I was like, I'm never finishing this because it was so bad. So I, I would like to say that Monday was my first short film, professional short film out of college, wrote and directed that. And then uh, 2016 and within, within two months, it had been written, cast, produced, shot, edited, and submitted to the HBO APA Visionaries Contest. And after that short, I received, you know, a good amount of recognition and which gave me a lot of confidence to pursue television directing. Um, so uh, inspiring and crazy because I, I remember being in my 20s and I remember friends of mine being in our 20s all wishing that we were writing and directing and hopefully, you know, that we'd have a shot at doing something. Had I known and I hope that listeners, young listeners are hearing this, that at 42, it is not late. And in fact, I want to hear your thoughts on 42 versus a 28-year-old you, Ding Tai, making Monday or a project. And the difference of what it would have been like as a 32-year-old making that or a 42-year-old making that. Experience, sensibilities, you know, um, um emotional connection with people understanding i'm still even though i could have never made monday at 32 i could and i and i probably could make it better today because wow. you know time experience love kindness compassion artistry it all grows and some of us are lucky enough to have it early on and some of us have to develop it. I'm not, I wouldn't say that I was gifted by, um, by storytelling. I really had to have learned, I learned, I had to learn it and I'm still learning it, you know? And so the, the 28 year old who made a short film in college, my 28 year, year old self was in a dream. I was clueless, right? Even though I had a four year education from art center, that's supposed to be really great. I, that's one thing that I can say definitively that I didn't need film school oh, to learn filmmaking. I just had to do it and meet people and make my mistakes. Right. Cause film school, all film school did was just distract me from actually doing what I wanted to do. Wow. That's like chefs, right? You hear that all the time, but, but, but I, I could be more definitive just by all the interviews that I've done with chefs and filmmakers that the chef route is 1000%. You do not need to go to culinary school and everything you learn is learning in the kitchen and the best chefs come from, you know, just slaving away at all these kitchens. But now today I'm hearing it very definitively from you as a filmmaker saying, fuck film school, just get out there and work on your buddy sets, right? Just do it, man. Yeah. It's wild. You know, I, when I was in film school, it felt great to be in there because it felt like, you know, going to college is important. All these things that are sort of programmed in our brains and in our emotions. Going to college is important. Studying something is important. Making friends is always important. But that's what that's what film school was, you know. And looking back at it, 
when I graduated compared to what I know today, I would say if, if, if we had to put it, you know, zero to 10, what I learned in film school was probably two and I'm prop and I'm like in an, a seven right now. Right. And you see, you see, you're like, how did I get to seven? How did I in four years? Right. How did I get to a two? And then in the next 10 or what has it been? It's been 20 years since film school. I've only gone up five ticks. It's because I don't have enough experience. I haven't spoken to to the masters. I haven't hung out with the masters. I haven't, you can, you can watch movies and watch behind the scenes as much as you want and learn as much as you want, but you really you just got to make stuff. Yeah. And then, and I would say to add to that, to, to add to that story of, um, college i came out as a two now i feel like i'm a i'm a seven but in the past two years i've probably went from a five to a seven right and it's just fascinating like where do you get this experience how does it work to gain experience where do you start and how do you add to your knowledge if i had done it any other way i don't know if i would be here right you can't you can't predict that but i know that I've been so fortunate enough to work in television the past three years or so, less than three years that I've learned so much, but I've learned so much because I've already learned enough to understand what I didn't need to learn and just focus on the things that I had to learn. And, and part of that is really interesting. Like if you ask me what the name of equipment, the name of a lens, the name of a camera, I could probably only tell you a fraction of that right? That stuff doesn't, I've outgrown it. I personally have told myself that I've outgrown what technology and equipment can and should do for me. I've learned enough. I know how to edit on Premiere. I know a little bit about color theory and color correction. Um, I know how to expose a camera. I know how to operate a camera. I know how to personally move a camera to tell a story, but I couldn't tell you what the technology is on that stuff, right? So, so then you then you look back and you, I look back and go, well, so what is filmmaking? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet, but I can say that I can start leaning towards filmmaking as a feeling. Yeah. You need all this technical stuff to, to, to um, conjure it. That's a great fucking word. Conjure the feeling. Yeah. But if you're so hyper-focused on tech, on technology and gear, then you then what, how much time have you spent on the feeling of something? Right. And there's a balance there. You have to do both. You have to be technical and then you have to be emotional in filmmaking because they both help tell the story. So to sum it up, it's taken me 20 years to get to this point. And um, and I consider myself a seven as a filmmaker or, or TV director. Thank you for sharing that. It's uh, it's always so I'm, I'm always so grateful to to have that peering into the the window and the soul of of somebody who's really grinded it out and and spent that time because people will sometimes look at you know um people who have arrived and go oh my god you know it's like so easy but it's not and to have that vulnerability to really say you know what you just said is is very special and unique to me and so thank you for for opening up like that yeah brother ken good to good to uh re um good to recall some of those feelings yeah where did you get the inspiration for monday 
Um, Monday is so here. Here's it, it gets a little convoluted. So I beg for your patience. So the way Monday the short started was that. Um, two of my friends, Greg Faruka and Fid Casas, great filmmakers, always making their own indie stuff. I was hanging out with them for a long, a, for an extended period of time, and they were making a short for HBO APA Visionaries. And um, and I was like, oh shit, I should do that too. Why not? I'm APA, right? And so I went. So I, then I started to think about the story, and I started to write the story about that had nothing to do with Monday. And as I, as I was going through it, I realized that there was, it was going to be too expensive. There was too much special effects. There was too many locations. There were too many things that um, I couldn't answer about the character. And if I had to answer it, it would be too expensive to answer it. So I went back to an old idea, which was like this weird little, um, beer commercial idea I had, which was a guy who's Asian, grabs a six pack, goes to his friend's house and he becomes whoever the click of his friends that he arrives to. So, and then he leaves and grabs another six pack and goes to another friend's house and becomes that click. And then go, you know, and then so, uh, so on and so forth. So, and that idea of code switching was what I used to do. And I still do. And we all still do when I was in high school, um, especially in high school, especially when hip hop hit really hard. Yeah. It was, you just, you know, as a person, as me being an Asian person, I, I felt like I knew what was cool and hip hop made it righteous for me to, to listen to hip hop. It made me feel righteous. It made me feel like I knew what was going on um, in the world. And, and so I emulated that stuff. And it was easy for me to emulate that because as growing up in grammar school, my best friend is Hispanic. My other friends are all Asian. Uh, my other friends are African-American. And it was just, you look, I got to look at all these cultures and, and essentially adapt to those cultures and not even knowing that I was doing that, right? And so as I got older, that concept of code switching turned into this really brief idea of a beer commercial. And so as I'm thinking about APA visionaries, I go back to that idea. I'm like, holy shit, I know this stuff really well. What would it be like if I just tap into some of the experiences that I've seen and lived through in high school and college and made it into a day, right? And so that's essentially the culmination of Monday is like, how do you code switch? How do you get away with shit? And what are the reasons that this character can do the things that he does? And and that's essentially the short, answering the those questions. It's not like I wanted to write this story and be really cool and show this thing. It was right. The exercise was answering the questions of how and why this character can do these things. And in screenwriting, one of the one of the best challenges and one of the best exercises is answering the hows and whys because then then you're on theme so how does this asian kid on a bike get away with stuff well he's on a bike so what are the chances of him getting pulled over less 
what how, how why else does he how else and why else does he get away with this stuff well because his cousin's a fucking police officer so you're sort of answering those questions and it makes it really interesting to watch um how does an how does this asian person allow why is this asian person allowed to code switch i don't know i don't know why asian men are allowed to be a little bit more hispanic a little bit more african-american a little bit more white why are we so flexible and fluid in these different cultures that don't look like us i don't know why i just know that it happens right you um, know that, that's another thing one thing i wanted to ask you about was do you feel like it's happening being allowed less nowadays i i have i personally have not experience that often i experience it once in a while and it's usually internal but um but i think since the the movement of of wokeness everyone has put up although people are talking about bringing down the walls and blurring the lines wokeness has just made the walls taller and made the lines thicker because now you can't do this because you're not that right if you're yeah. chinese you can't play korean i'm like are you what <laughs> but you could be but you could be caucasian and have played every role since the and, beginning of the time yeah and uh, we'll segue real quick into the wu-tang episodes you know as i was you know watching this whole timeline in my mind about your directing sort of journey i was like today is that going to be would that be okay i mean that was just a short few years ago that you directed yeah. those episodes but it was last year Oh, wow. So it's not. So. All right. Well, let's let me go back. A ask, little bit. ask the question, Ken. How does an Asian American director exactly. work on a black American? That's show? exactly what I was going to ask you. I mean, I have it literally written that way in my questions here. Yeah. How did so, how did that happen? So how does an Asian American man work on a black American hip hop show? Iconic, iconic institution of America. How do they let you on that team? So. If you know anything about Wu-Tang, that's the jumping off point of Wu-Tang yeah. is East meets West. Yeah. East in its most stereotypical form and West in its hip hop form. And so there are two extremes, conceptually two extremes that came together when the RZA founded this thematic tone for their music. Um, it's a long story and I'll try to truncate it. So after I made Monday, I met Quan Fong, who was one of our, um, um, he's a community leader. He's a filmmaker. He's a producer. He was also part of Divan that night you and I met, right? He's He was the moderator for Viet and I's conversation. That's Quan. And he introduced me to Alex Z. Alex Z is a writer, producer, he, and also the showrunner of uh, Wu-Tang and American Saga. And this, this meeting between Quan, Alex, and I happened about a year before Alex started working on Wu-Tang. He was in the conversation. Alex was in the conversation. And Quan just introduced us. And, and long story short, I stayed in touch with Alex. I would text him once in a while, check in on him. After the first season had aired, I checked in on Alex, asking him, Hey, if you want to catch up. So we caught up and Alex told me, shared his experiences on the show with me. Alex is also Asian American and he worked directly with the RZA on the show. So you can see that 
the RZA as a human is beyond the constructs that we think exist of, again, going back to the question, how does an Asian American man work on a black American hip hop show? And so the RZA already answered that question by work, by hiring and partnering up with Alex. So there, there's that, right? Um, and in the, in the, in the movement of wokeness, are we allowed to work on that show? Do you have to be a black American director to work on the Wu-Tang show? Do you have to be Asian and American to work on the Wu-Tang show? What are, what are the rules? What did we get? Our, and I'll say this very straightforward. What did we get ourselves into with this state of extreme wokeness, right? If you say that I'm not allowed to work on that show, that's unfair. If you say you have to be, that's also unfair. So there's a fine balance of what, for me, what my success is um, dependent on. Because if APA never existed, which was hyper-focused on Asian Pacific Americans, I'd never would have made Monday. So without the spark of wokeness, things don't get started. But then the fire of wokeness, things get burnt. And, and that's the thing. I think there's this sort of nuance with this idea of progress, progressive thinking is punching up and punching down, right? So this yeah. idea, yeah. So if you think about it categorically where if you're an African-American and you're doing not well and you look up and you see this, what optically looks like an Asian guy who's very sophisticated, he gets to work on that Wu-Tang project, then it's like punching up and down, right? Like you're looking up and that's where you kind of integrate this idea of like this wokeness, like, no, he can't do that because from your position, you're like, well, why does that guy, why does that Asian guy who's in a supposed higher class get to touch our, our property, our, our shit? Yeah. So I'll shit. tell you why. Because I've spent more time learning about the cultures around me and understanding other people's cultures and being open to that, which opens my world up. And so you can say the opposite, which is what if I only knew about Chinese Vietnamese stuff and I knew nothing about American stuff. I didn't listen to hip hop. I didn't grow up with an Hispanic best friend. I didn't do any of that. Then what do I deserve? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I think this needs to change. I think this whole thing is it's not that it's gone too far. I think it's we need to separate what this idea is all about cuz it's great that people are getting, you know, equalized and things are normalizing for yeah, everybody. Yeah. But at some point like this inability to process like the fact that there's an Asian man that can be that he understands all of it and he's qualified for the job or a Korean guy can play a Chinese guy on screen. We, there's gotta be something to all of this madness. We gotta figure out a way to, to be able to make it balance. into, yeah, balance it. Just like that, uh, Bruce Lee saying, just be like water. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't, I know that we're speaking about this very passionately and some people might receive it as a extremist 
way of having an opinion. But I truly believe that in every aspect of this existence that we're so lucky to be in together, that everything is gray. There's no black and white anymore. There's no you can do this. Sorry, there's no you are only allowed to do this because of what you look like. We're, we should be propelling ourselves into this new era of what do you know? And if you know about that stuff, then sure, you should be an artist in yeah. that world. And if you don't know, here we are. We'll help you understand. And you can be part of this creative family as well. That's, that's the conversation. That's the correct conversation. That's the new shit, right? And sometimes people are still saying, putting mandates out there like, hey, we can't hire this certain type of person. We have to hire this other type of person. I like the latter part. We have to hire this other type of person. I don't like the former part. We can't hire this because they look a certain way or are a certain way. I don't, I don't think that that extreme is favorable to our advancement, right? Because there are some people out there that know a lot about there, there's a, there's a Vietnam, there's a Caucasian man who I follow on Instagram. He speaks Vietnamese. He lives in Vietnam. He travels in Vietnam. He knows more about Vietnam than I do. Do yeah. I, how do I feel about that? You know, there's one way I could be like jealous of him or the other way where I follow him. I'm like, I'm going to learn from this guy. Right. Because he's my bridge to my culture. You know, That's so shit. That's the right way to look at it. I hope so. Until it's not, until it changes again. But for now, I you know, the goal is unity and peace. Yeah. But but I think just to go back on that example that you just brought up with the white guy uh, in, that you follow, if the white guy is really coming at it with a sense of appreciation and a, hum, a humility and saying, I am, come along with me. I am learning the culture and I want to share what I'm learning. That's yeah. one thing, right? But it's different when you're a, a white chef in Minnesota and you are claiming that my dish, my pho dish or whatever is superior to anything you've ever had because I went to, you know, CIA, I went to Culinary Institute and I, I'm the shit. So there's like sort of all of these like nuanced gray that you talk about. I think that for the, for the make-believe Caucasian man who made pho in Minnesota, if if that's if that's the best pho I've ever had, then so be it. That's rock, yeah. So be it. Um, if he only lived in, if he studied in um, Hanoi or Saigon for a few months and brought it back home, and made it even better, then great. <laughs> what's the what's the problem? What are, what are the what's the problem here? The problem is that there are a group of people who haven't done shit in their lives and our keyboard warriors that are going to talk shit about that Minnesotian. Mm. That's the problem, right? Because that's what we're at right now is that um, the power of the keyboard and the convenience of being on a computer is so is a tidal wave for people. And it's not fair. It's not fair that that um, many people who have made mistakes in this world are being shamed, yeah. collectively shamed by people typing on a keyboard. It's not, it's not fair. But 
I'm not, I'm not saying I want to protect any of these people. I'm just saying we have to examine this stuff. Yeah. You have to, it's case by case. We've been indoctrinated to believe that one form of an opinion or a law that is written is absolute. And that's unfair. Everything is case by case, right? The marijuana laws today are not of the ones from yesterday, right? It's unfair. It's it times change all the time. We have to be fluid. We have to be flexible. Yes. Sensibilities change. Morality, morals yeah. change, and we can't use old laws and old opinions or new opinions to suppress or judge people. It's just unfair. You got to do everything case by case. Some people are good. They make mistake once, and and um, and we have to see it case by case. Now this does this excludes people who are obviously evil right um and uh, hopefully we don't have to name any names because yeah. that would be unfair too yeah but you know everything should be case by case we should really take the time to look at stuff and I, and I don't know how to solve that because I'm just a filmmaker yeah but I I think that these long form conversations that's happening it's ubiquitous it's all over you know the podcast platforms it's all over youtube people are stretching out conversations and really digging into the gray i find that to be more prevalent today than 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 years past i think people are really getting into this idea of like let's really stretch these things out and let's let's break it down component by component Um, yeah and and you know i'm here for that i i love that how did you uh get Asian baby girls. How, how did that come about? So that's a crazy story. Thank you for asking, Ken. So Natalie Chaidez, the original creator of that show, was looking for a writer to partner up with. And this was about um, dang, three years ago. And luckily we met um, and um, and when she interviewed me, I pitched to her the why. Why does this happen? And the premise of Asian Baby Girl is that there are three Vietnamese American high school students who are female, coming of age story, that get caught up in Vietnamese American gangs in Orange County. That's the premise of the, of the show. And so when Natalie and I met, I, I shared with her the why this happens. Not what the characters are going to do, not who these characters are, not what the the lifestyles like but it's just the why and the why is essentially when you're a group of refugees and you come to a new country and you've been affected by the traditional community around you you're going to bond together and that bond turns into something it starts pure and then turns into something else and so as natalie and i were developing it we really explored these themes of post vietnam war communities and what how that affects people. And so Asian baby girl is like a modern day retelling of the original Asian baby girls that were born, quote unquote, born birth in 1989, 1991, when these young women were the girlfriends of gang members and doing essentially what the male gang members were doing, but more violently and could get away with it because either they were underage or they were just unassuming in a way. So that's, that's that's the premise of Asian Baby Girl, and um, 
And then fast forward to um, a year and a half later with Natalie, we were greenlit to to produce and, and shoot a pilot, which I pitched for and um, was luckily awarded. And then, you know, we just we finished the pilot over the summer and now we're standing by. I can't tell you what's happening, but we're standing by. Well, congratulations for even getting the pilot off the ground, right? Thank you, brother. And we were really adamant about filming it in Los Angeles and Orange County. There were conversations again. Here, this goes back to some of the indoctrinated programming that we received uh, in our lives, but spe but specifically in filmmaking, there are many people who want to film a story in a different region of this earth, and specifically, Vancouver is very popular. Toronto is very popular. And you just can't tell this story of Asian baby girl in any other place. And so we were really lucky to have filmed it in, we spent a couple of days in Orange County and we spent the majority of the other time in Los Angeles. And again, you know, if, if you were to judge us for not filming in Orange County, all I can say is that we tried. There are little, there are limitations to filming in different parts of this um in california and it's usually cost driven reasons so it was really hard to film there to get it to get the pilot filmed in southern california but we did it and so we tried our best um but part of that's the best part of being of the woke movement is that it made us realize some of the wrongs we were doing in the past and one of the wrongs is telling a vietnamese american story and filming it in Vancouver, that would be absolutely wrong. Now, well, what about the whole period aspect of it? You know, it being in the '90s, and did you have to transform set for production for modern day, or did you? How did you kind of like mitigate that? You sort of—that's a great question—and you sort of just buy into it that at any time. At any timeline of our post-Vietnamese um, war existence here in the States, at any timeline, any Asian woman who gets involved with gangs becomes an Asian baby girl. So it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter that what time have, period, yeah. What time period is. It's essentially there are yes, there are Asian baby girls around, but we're going to tell the story about about how these three become Asian baby girls, and so you're dealing more with thematics, more so. You're yeah, putting that prior, you're pri prioritizing theme more than you know, actual yeah. mechanical sort yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. The period of it isn't that interesting, right? What do you gain? Yeah, we asked ourselves a little bit. What do you gain from putting it in eighty nine, ninety, ninety one? What do you really gain? And I don't know, is it is it far enough to gain something? Not really, right? But it's also far enough to make it really expensive. Yeah, it's. I think it's like, it's cost and, and price and, and making it expensive, but also perhaps having it set in present day might be more connective tissue to you, the youth. Sure. You know, the you know, stretching it back to the '90s, it maybe modern day kids that are you know young kids today, it'd be a little bit trickier to connect with kind of like 
putting our mindsets because we grew up in the 90s and transporting sort of like that feel but might be more relative to the kids today if, if you may sure. set it modern yeah you bring up a good point you know we in the 80s and 90s we had we had different sensibilities and some of those especially in subcultures they don't really translate to mm. a, a wider audience so part of the strategy is like if you modernize it you help get like as you said get the audience on board pretty quickly have you yeah. been to vietnam i haven't been back man I'm, I'm i need to go back at some point yeah what what do you think has kept you from going to vietnam um lack of understanding the culture lack of speaking the language lack of family there um so meaning if in going to vietnam i would want to go with a friend that can speak the language and um and that you know that takes time that takes time to i've met a, a handful of people who are very uh vietnamese centric vietnam centric and at some point we'll go but there's yeah. no fear in it it's just lack of yeah understanding the language and culture yeah i i after talking to you today i just uh i can't wait to hear your thoughts when you get back because um this is relatively late for a vietnamese american person who is so integrated into understanding these cultural plays these cultural identity questions to have not gone back that you know that soon yeah and the other the other reason ken is that i've been really lucky to be busy and yeah. so you know um when i when i become less busy maybe you know uh, one thing, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of our, 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 our time here, but uh, I don't know why I just want to go back in time to ask you about the L.A. riots. If you were around for that time, if that had any sort of um, effect on, you know, your growth uh, in Southern California. I remember. I was in Arcadia. I was with my friend Rich Herrera. And we were standing next to, we were standing outside of a video game shop and we're hearing about the riots somehow. I forget exactly how. Then all of a sudden there's this kid that's running out of the um, video game shop carrying, um, I think, a, a Sega console and he was stealing it. And that's what I remember about the riots from a first person experience and then obviously hearing about it on the news and um and seeing the racial divide i didn't it didn't affect me i just saw it as chaos and as i got older more recently especially watching some of the stuff on um social media having really giving my giving myself a chance to listen to the commentary and seeing the imagery i realize how fucking stupid all of that stuff is and um and how one-dimensional the knee-jerk reaction of those rights are you know um and i can't i can't blame anyone for it except that 
if you expect poor people to get along from different cultures in the United States, the takeaway is like, is like, man, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. And I ask this because I, I think for me, when I'm looking at Monday, when I'm looking at Wu Tang, when I'm looking at um, Asian baby girl, it all has this sort of thread of this third culture for me. It's all third culture, like, you know, Wu-Tang and East-West, you know, it's producing this yeah. third culture. Uh, Monday's definitely, you know, the third culture. And then Asian Baby Girls is definitely all of its third culture. And for some reason, I feel the same way about the L.A. riots. I was in it. I was in the heart of it uh, in Koreatown. Yeah, right. But I don't, there's, the, like, I felt like I never had a horse in the race. You know, it's like. Yeah, all this stuff was going on, but it's just, it right. was so stupid. And, but it's not because it affected a lot of lives and it affected Koreans and it affected blacks so, so much in, in that part of the town that I grew, part of the town that I grew up in. But I wanted to hear what you felt because I felt, you know, we're like kind of the same age. And I was like, I, I always felt not part of that experience, but, you know, you're in it, but you're not with it. You're not. You know, you know, yeah. you know, if I were, if, if my parents owned a shop and it was terrorized in those riots, I would have a lot of hatred in my heart. I have the hatred in my heart, but I can control it because I'm detached from it. And so I feel bad for every party involved. I feel bad for the, for the criminals. I feel bad for the victims. It's just chaos, man. And there's not enough time in those people's lives to take a step back, slow down and go, fuck, yeah. I need to learn. I need to be better. There's just not enough time when, when you're, I, cause I remember this stuff when we were younger um, and my parents and I were really poor and we, you know, we're struggling. Time moves fucking fast, Right. Because you're working two jobs or you're working 16 hours. Time hauls ass and you have six kids you got to tend to. And there's no there's not enough space in your day to just go slow down. What am I feeling? How am I going to react? Because mm. you're fucking hauling ass. And and I, I don't have an answer for that. You know, you, yeah. you have to fix people one by one. You can't fix them collectively. I shouldn't say fix. What's the right word? Maybe adjust. You can't adjust people. You can't um, enlighten power. Enlighten power. Yeah. Enlighten. Yeah. And I question this on a daily basis. If life in America is actually getting better or worse, you know, on some some on some level, I feel like a lot of it's getting better, and and some things are regressing. I feel. But uh, as people who are really third culture guys like us, we could kind of navigate and see the nuances of like, especially city life in LA where a lot of it is getting darker. Um, and yeah, I look downtown. Yep. Huh. So I'm like, you know, eight blocks from Skid Row and it's part of it. But who are we to say as people who are entitled and privileged living in our homes, talking on our computers, who are we to say that those Skid Row people are the ones that are the problem? 
right? Why aren't we saying government? Why aren't because the government's not right next to us down the street? Yeah, right. And that is a powerful thought. We blame the people closest to us. That's the problem with the riots. And you you un, you you unpack how did those Koreans get into that community? How did Africans Americans get into that community? How did they surge from you know the 60s, 70s, 80s into the 90s to come to that point? Right. And who's in who's making the laws that are absolute that affect people on an emotional and psychological level? So you can't really blame, but it, it's unfair to blame an individual in the LA riots, but, but it's also unethical to not prosecute them. You, it, at some point you have to blame somebody. You have to, you have to do something about someone's um, victimizing someone else. You have to do something about it, but there's a bigger picture thing happening. How does society affect the individual? And then what part did the government have in putting those two communities together, right? But we can't answer those questions because they're too dangerous to answer. Yeah, in this day and age, but they have to be examined in the future because if it's not this experiment caught the united states is gonna it's gonna pay it's gonna yeah dire consequences yeah yeah and i'm not smart enough to give answers to those really deep rooted issues that we all have you know yeah. what what's next for you i finally have some time off i just had a really busy year i worked on american born chinese for disney plus um and then I did the Asian baby girl thing. And then I went to Cape Town and worked on Warrior. And I just got back from Vancouver uh, from a show called Career Opportunities in Murder and Mayhem. Very cool. So I'm really lucky to have been that busy. Thanks. I'm really tired. Um, Wait. So next is hanging out with my family and eating some food. <laughs> cool. Now, on Warriors, did you uh, get to direct a few episodes? Yeah, it's uh, two episodes right in the middle. Um, Cape Town's incredible. And Cape Town is essentially, you know, the the dynamic of wealthy and poor are really close to each other. And there's a lot of tension between the two classes. And it's it's fascinating to see that type of community try to thrive and survive and uh, my experience in cape town has been very positive and people are gracious and and thoughtful and thankful and appreciative and uh, when i got home i said hi to a stranger down the street who had a really cute dog and i said good morning and the person was like hey i'm like welcome back to america that person might have been from the East Coast, though. So you have you have to forgive them. Yeah. <laughs> the East Coasters they don't they don't suffer. They they don't they're not into like the highs and the 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 greetings that out here in the West Coast. I feel like we're just much. And I have this conversation with a lot of my East Coast friends. They're like, 
In New York, nobody says hi to you when you walk. You know, you if we go on a hike here at Griffith Park, say hi all day long and people will respond. But the East Coasters are like, whoa. Yeah. I think, you know, if, if, um, I think just being nice to people really changes who you are. Yeah. One second of one nice hello is, I think, is pretty powerful. But, you know, community is a big issue. And that's part of the LA riots topic. It's like, why weren't they, why weren't they a community? Why were they divided? And for the same, whatever reasons we make up for not saying hi or, or wants to say hi, I feel like when you're, I think as a person, when you're more closed off and you hang out with people who are more closed off, it becomes something negative, you know? And, uh, and I don't think it's healthy. Yeah. Thank you so much. Welcome, brother. Uh, I feel like we can. I feel like we need to hang out in person and just uh, speak off the record about some shit. Because I, think yeah, I know I can feel that too. <laughs> I think we will get some good laughs out of it. Just you can't. As soon as you stop recording, we shit gets real. <laughs> uh, then thank you so much. Um, don't hang up. I'll just hit the stop record. Uh, thank you again. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, you know, seeing more episodes of Asian baby girl. That, that sounds very exciting. You, and, you know, uh, fingers crossed. I, I know how this is, how this works. And I just, uh, would love to see more of it. I, w- I want to see the first pilot and I want to see, you know, what happens and what transpires in, in your, your life with creating it. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it, man. We hope we hope the same for the show. Awesome. It's been it's been awesome to chat with you. Thanks for asking good questions and being patient with some of the answers. And um, and I just have to, you know, clear the slate a little bit like the stuff we talk about today and how opinionated we are and how passionate we are doesn't mean it's going to be forever like this video and this audio times change, people change and opinions change. and uh, one example is like, you know, marijuana, again, marijuana laws today aren't of yesterday. And that's how we should look at the world and be open to um, be open to having an opinion, but also be open to knowing that that opinion can change tomorrow. That's a great way to end this. I love it. I agree. hundred percent. Yes. Um, it, everything changes. That's the, the, the one constant in life is that things change. Yep. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. 